Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome back for another episode. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, we are here. We are present in the moment and hoping that you all are as well. Uh, Kira, how's it going? Very well. Very well. How about you, Lindsay? What's up? Uh, I think I think I'm doing fine. I think uh, it's been it's been an okay day so far. I had a good call this morning with someone who it was kind of fun. It was a uh, I think people will appreciate this some of our listeners, but it was someone who comes from kind of the clean tech world and they wanted to know about buildings and policy stuff. And I spent just, you know, kind of 15 minutes rattling all these things off and tell, you know, like trying to remember to to break down the acronym ASHRAE and talk about, yeah. you know, like all of the, and, and they were, and he said such a nice thing. He was like, you, you really know what you're talking about with all this stuff. And I was like, oh, what a nice thing for someone to say. So it set me off on a good like mood for my day to have somebody say like, you know what you're talking about with some things. And, you know, yeah, <laughs> as I someone who experiences a lot of, a lot of those questions of like, do I know what I'm talking about? Uh, <laughs> sometimes that's just great. having someone else tell you yeah that's so great that's my that's, day so far I like hearing that I I have I had an experience this week where somebody was asking if they could if they could if I could help talk to someone about what's been going on sort of in the industry the the building and design fields generally in climate work for the past you know decades because this person <laughs> client of theirs was trying to suggest that they've been researching it for a couple of years and that they were some, they were an expert. And so it made me think, and I'm like, of course, I'll talk to this person and I have some people I can send them to and all these things. But it also made me think about how important it is that we have a really accessible way to talk to everyone regarding, regardless of where they are on the curve right? Yeah. Because we need them all and we need them all like really fast. So we need to, them to jump in really hard wherever they are. Yeah. Um, so we have to figure out how to do that in a like really welcoming way. Like you said, that made me think of it when you said breaking down the acronyms, because if we just start spewing acronyms at them, you know, and talking about how important um, being on all these code committees is and all that stuff, it's, it's overwhelming and um, also not very, it doesn't feel very welcoming, right? Yeah. We have to get them in there. Yeah, yeah, no, I think there's a lot of really good critique of the climate movement in general, but especially those of us that work in these particular, I, I guess maybe you could call it climate solutions. Like mm -hmm. it's, I don't know a lot of people that do a great job of saying, this is how we're gonna get out of this mess in a way that actually sounds human and just that is designed for everyone, everyone that needs to be a part of the decision to make these transitions, to understand yep. the decisions, you know, it's not great. Um, and I mean, yeah, I cringe a little bit when people use the word science to sort of say like, we just need to pay attention to the science. Cause like, man, how many people out there really didn't like science class and like, do not want to think about it that way. And yet, these are things that impact our lives. It's very, you know, yep. very real, very visceral stuff. And we For just sure. always manage to get put ourselves into this 
landscape of acronyms and it's complicated. I mean, it's not to say it's not complicated. It's just, um, you know, uh, I think sometimes some of us go through these phases where we, you you want to show how much you know by using the acronyms and using yeah. all of the sort of talking talking standard numbers and all of that. You know, there's a lot there that uh, yeah. Yeah, makes you sure. look smart, but it doesn't really help anybody else. Uh, so yeah. Well, it's interesting too because among the people that have been doing it for a long time, I've also been noticing a lot of conversations about. Um, you know, how hopeful do we have to be? How optimistic do we have to sound? And, mm -hmm. and even the other issues which have to do some sort of with like, where do we get our, my, this, my friend, uh, Jody Smith Anderson calls it capacity to continue. She's using a little hashtag on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. She posted the other day, she's the director of sustainability at the dormitory authority in New York state. And she's been at this work for a long time. And she posted on LinkedIn, this open question to um, people about, you know, she's like, I feel like I'm hitting a wall and I, I don't know what I don't, you know, I basically mm -hmm. sort of outing herself as having this moment and got a flood of responses about how to deal with this. How should we talk about it? How can, what, what kind of, what, how can we help each other through the wall, right? About yeah. this, which I thought was fascinating. And I mean, it sort of is references, you know, things that we occasionally talk about on this podcast with these amazing people. So I, it really resonated with me. Yeah, no, totally. And I do think we've had some wonderful folks on the podcast that I guess part of what it is, this is probably an oversimplification, but it feels sometimes to me like once people get to a certain stage in their career that they know all of the sort of basic machinations of what we have to do to change uh, the industry around, you know, whatever it is. Or just mm -hmm. generally speaking, once you get to that phase where you kind of know it, you know the field, you know the terms, you know the people, uh, then you start thinking about how to communicate it well. And so it can sound so easy uh, when great leaders in our industry talk about the work that we need to be doing or, you know, yeah. the challenge ahead. But it's actually usually because they've spent more time more recently trying to figure out how to communicate that. Yes. Um, it's one of those things I think we kind of lose track of, but um, it takes work. I remember learning that one of my favorite professors in graduate school would, kind of would write and rewrite his lectures I'm just being so baffled by it because it came off so naturally. And I thought, you know, and we've talked about this a little bit. I don't know if we've talked about it on air, but some of our guests write out the responses to their questions yep. ahead of time. And you would never know. It's it's not the people that you might think. That's right. <laughs> that way. That's exactly true. <laughs> it's some of the most experienced public speakers. Um, and I just find that, I find that delightful to know that um, this is, and I hope you all find it a relief to hear that this is not just because they're always, some, some people are just naturally great, <laughs> you know, like just words just roll off the tongue. But for most of the people that we listen to and believe in and, and hear talk about this work, they work at it, you know. Um, totally, yeah. totally. I think it's, well, as you know, so I'm a communications person and I spend a lot of time talking to people in the design field about why why communications is important. But what's interesting is like, it's it's one hurdle to, come, to get them to address that it is important and they need to like invest in it and do it. And then there's the other part, which is like how to be intentional about it, right? <laughs> like, and yeah. be really, 
careful with it. And within, you know, within certain silos in the industry, there are different ways to talk about things. And it's tempting to be very, we can do this about all of it, but even about hard things, right? So we do have to look at that carefully and make sure that we're clear. It, I mean, we can do this, but it is also, there is a ton of work ahead. In, yeah. In <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's all just sort of in the way that we communicate that, that, that the effectiveness lies, I think. Um, yeah. Um, well, that is a fantastic way uh, to introduce our guest for today, um, a woman who is a wonderful communicator. I don't know how rehearsed it is, but she certainly knows how to get uh, get to the bottom of things. Uh, we have Michelle Moore with us. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much. I feel like I have this incredibly high bar that I have to live up to. <laughs> Not at all. I know that's true. It's kind of rough to say like, oh, this, you know, but no, I just think you're a natural um, for lots of reasons. It may, it, it has something to do with being a Southerner. I will start off that way, but let me tell everybody a little bit about you, Michelle, before we start. So Michelle is the CEO of Groundswell. It's a nonprofit that builds community power by connecting clean energy with economic development, affordability, and quality of life. She led sustainability for the Obama administration. And uh, full disclosure, we worked together. She was a, a senior vice president at the USGBC. Um, she serves on the executive advisory board for the American Flood Coalition. She's on the board of directors for THI Studio. And I love this. Michelle's work is rooted in her faith and the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. So we're super happy to have you, Michelle. Um, we would love for you to just start by telling us your path. How did you get involved in sustainability and clean energy work? Uh, what what have you been up to? Well, I'm I'm so grateful to be with y'all today. And um, you know, I've reflected on the question about path and. You know, when I look at my my resume or my bio, you know, there's a line that runs through it that seems to make sense. But I can also share that uh, that that sense of order in the pathway is something that's totally in retrospect and totally didn't feel like that at the time. Um, every single big transition in my life and in my career was like totally white knuckling around every corner. But um, you know, ultimately, you know, for me, sustainability was about um, loving the, the people, you know, that, that I lived around, loving my community and loving the place that I lived. And even when I was very young, I just didn't understand why people did bad things that hurt other people and hurt animals and um, that hurt the places that we live. And I was so fortunate in um, literally living out my worst nightmare and ending up back in my hometown uh, of LaGrange, Georgia, after going off to the big city and getting a fancy graduate degree, and um, that I got to work uh, for Ray Anderson and work with Interface Inc. at the very beginning of that company's climb up Mount Sustainability, as Ray always described it. And it just opened my eyes, you know, to how we could marry um, purpose and, and profitability and as Ray always said, do well by doing good and build something as we were doing it, you know, because when I came out of grad school in the mid 1990s, doing environmental anything was really about regulation lawsuits or cleaning up other people's messes, you know, none of which appealed to me. And the blessing of, of working uh, for Ray and with Interface at that time really put me on the path of um, what's been a lifetime passion for me. And that I'm so grateful, you know, to still serve 
and serve my community and uh, serve people, people who I grew up with in my hometown of LaGrange, Georgia, uh, even today. Uh, that is wonderful. And uh, anytime I hear a story about someone who started their career with Ray Anderson, it just reminds me of like how, <laughs> how powerful one person can be. Uh, and yeah, I get that um, from you, Michelle, there's sort of an energy about it um, that I totally understand. Um, so yeah, so, so let's talk about this, um, this white knuckling for a minute. I think people will probably relate to that. I relate to that for sure. Um, you've had all these different your roles in your career. What were the decisions you were making during some of those big uh, kind of role transitions you've had? What guided you through uh, those decisions? Throughout my life, you know, throughout my career, I've always had a sense of purposefulness and an internal drive, you know, that, that kept me moving forward. You know, even through fear in some cases and, and even through hardship, you know, but I have to say that again, you know, really rooted in my faith, um, I give the, you know, I, I give my thanks to God for guiding me through even very, very, you know, challenging decisions and really difficult points in my life. You know, one, I remember after, um, you know, after leaving Interface, I went to work at a tech startup. And this was during the internet boom. And I will also share that we did everything at exactly the wrong time. <laughs> the company's name was Blue Bolt Networks. I think we got our Series A funding the Wednesday after the bubble burst on Wall Street. And the work of being there was just really keeping our customers and keeping our employees whole. And when we finally sold that company, to a, a public firm, which kept it going, you know, it wasn't anybody about any kind of great windfall for anybody. I didn't have a job and I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew that I want to continue on and really make the focus of my work sustainability in that spirit of service. And I had talked to lots of different people. I asked everyone, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to stay involved in business. I want to stay involved in communications, but I, I just want to dedicate myself to sustainability as the thing that I am trying to bring into this world. And every single person I talked to said that you need to go to work at USGBC, but USGBC wasn't hiring. And um, I think I just literally stalked people at the organization until they agreed to give me a consulting job. <laughs> And, I love that. I did not know that story. That's so cool. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure I was super duper annoying, but I, but I was very persistent with a smile. I was always very pleasant and Southern about the whole thing. But um, yeah, I moved back to Washington, D.C. as a part-time consultant for USGBC, earning less money than I had since I left graduate school and not even able to afford my own apartment. I had to move in with my Uncle Brad. And, um, but it was, you know, hard and scary and, uh, and sometimes felt like I had failed, you know, because I was struggling so much even to pay my graduate school loans, but it was one of the best decisions that I ever made. And I'm just grateful to God for getting me through it. And um, a year later, I was brought on board full time. And, you know, the time I spent at USGBC just built a professional community to me that was more like family. And that it was just like work colleagues. And again, just helped to um, make me better and uh, make me more humble as well in the work. And uh, most importantly to me, you know, get more good stuff done. 
Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, I remember those days. I can totally see that. I, and it is a family. It's such an incredible community and uh, very fortunate as well that that organization gave me that. Um, so I want to also hear about a little bit before we move on to your work today about just like that moment with uh, when you made the transition. Um, I guess maybe let's talk specifically about your role in the Obama White House. Can you tell us like just what that was and how it felt? Because I just think it's a great story that everybody wants to hear. I don't know how much we'll get into the specifics of it otherwise. So like, tell us what that was like. When I got the call from the White House about the possibility of serving as federal environmental executive, which was what the role was called at the time, I was sitting in a meeting with Joe Vedden Bellingham. <laughs> And this 202 number came up on my phone. I had no idea what it was. It just said 202. And the person on the other end of the line said that they were with the White House and asked if I knew anyone who wanted to serve or, and who would be good, you know, serving as the federal environmental executive. And I thought for a second and I was like, well, what about me? <laughs> I, I would be really interested in doing that. And, um, you know, that started me on a path that, that took me to the White House Council on Environmental Quality and, and working in a role that's now uh, called a Federal Chief Sustainability Officer. And it was humbling and, and also absolutely thrilling, you know, to be um, working with President Obama and, and Vice President Biden as a part of the climate and energy team and to be doing it at a time when we thought that everything was possible, you know, in turning the corner on climate change and, and really doing the, the things, um, you know, those climate solutions, uh, Lindsay and Kira, that you guys talked about uh, that would help get us on a better path and, and get us on a right path, you know, towards a healthier world. And there were days of, you know, incredibly high highs, you know, when you're working in a public service role, you know, as hard as it can be to be so like far away from the field, if you will, like I like getting my hands on projects, you know, and working in the policy realm, you don't always get to see the idea that you've advanced really in implementation because you're far away from that. Um, but it was exciting to, you know, help to double the federal hybrid fleet, you know, or to work with the military services and the Department of Defense to commit to what ultimately became three gigawatts of new clean energy or to help launch the Better Buildings Challenge, you know, billions of dollars in energy retrofits and some of the first green bond deals in the country. And then there were the really hard days, you know, like climate legislation not advancing in the Congress, you know, but ultimately, you know, there again, um, serving alongside such extraordinary people with such purposeful commitment to service and humble service, you know, with a long-term view in mind, you know, is one of the extraordinary blessings of that time. And I'm so grateful, you know, for my friends and, and for my colleagues and for what we were able to get done together then in service and what we've been able to do together since. Michelle, that's such a great story. I love hearing that. Lindsay, I'm glad you asked that question because I was just realizing, I'm like, when are we going to talk to her about that? I want to make sure to hear about all that. Um, and I just, I love so many aspects of your story and it really just is, um, you know, you can just feel the passion at each of those turning points for you, driving you towards, um, you know, the, the, the longer through line that you were mentioning. I want to shift gears just a little bit, and um, I hope that you can tell us um, about the work that Groundswell does and your business model. Absolutely. Um, you know, Groundswell's mission is building community power, and we mean that in every sense of the word. 
And for me personally, you know, in, in committing to Groundswell as its CEO, it was really all about being able to, to do good works, you know, that would benefit um, people like my grandparents. You know, my grandparents worked in the cotton mills their whole lives. And, um, and they did it so their families could get an education and live a little bit better, you know, in the next generation. And as I was leaving the White House, one of the things that I really reflected on a sense of conviction, like a personal conviction, was that as much as I had done, you know, with my, with my colleagues, with the team over my career, you know, to reduce pollution, and um, to reduce energy use, reduce water use, all the good things, that the benefits had really accrued primarily to big companies and to wealthy communities who got to live a little bit better, you know, live a little greener and save some money on their operating costs. But nothing I had ever done would have directly impacted my grandparents, even though they were always proud. And I really wanted to recommit to serving people and putting people at the forefront of what I did. And um, that is what Groundswell does. You know, whether it's energy efficiency programs that are helping to reduce energy burdens and keep those jobs you know, in the local community, or it's community solar projects, you know, that are bringing more renewable energy online, yes, but also sharing savings equitably, you know, so that those, you know, solar savings go to people who need them, not just to the early adopters who can afford to stroke the check for the new energy technology. You know, that's where my heart is in the work. And I love being able to serve with joy, you know, as my colleague Crystal Knowles always says, uh, but to bring that joy to the work every day and supporting people and um, doing it in a way that respects their priorities, their values and their needs. I love that, Michelle. Um, and I've been wanting to learn more about Groundswell for some time. I'm wondering if you can tell us just a little bit more about sort of the history and the evolution of the organization itself. Sure. Groundswell was actually founded in 2009 um, by a team of young organizers off the Obama 2008 campaign. And they came to DC and created what was then known as the DC Project. And it was all about using community organizing strategies to get people into energy retrofit programs that would then support good union jobs. And that was Groundswell's work during its early days. I was very grateful at the time to know some of the founders and some of the early board members as they were getting started and getting up and going. And um, when I came in in 2015, the energy markets had just changed. The enthusiasm for green jobs and green retrofits had waned a bit as some of the Recovery Act dollars that had funded that work faded away. And we also had all these new technologies that were becoming much more available to people, particularly since the cost of solar had come down so much. So we looked at the organization's founding mission and asked ourselves, how can we really recenter our work in a way that puts people first and prioritizes equity, energy equity, uh, serving all with expanded access and lower bills in what we do. And so we developed our community solar program and um, that's how we got started on this pathway, you know, that now has us leading research efforts and energy burden relieving energy efficiency programs and a much broader range of solar projects that I could have ever imagined um, when we got on this path together in 2015. Can you talk, um, Michelle, a little bit about what guides you as a leader there in that organization? Both for me as a leader 
and and also for Groundswell as an organization, you know, because Groundswell is a is a team. It's it's my job to support and uplift and and provide resources for the mission and for the people who work with Groundswell and for the people that we serve. I am, and we are very values centric. So we have a statement of values. Now you can find it online on our website, actually, groundswell.org. And those values guide how we work every day and how we make decisions. And one of the things that is fundamental to our project and program design is aligning value with our values. And I wanna give you an example at a policy level and at a program level for how that works. At a policy level, think about the ITC, think about the solar tax credit. It is a tax credit and it's still worth a lot. And currently 26% of the value of uh, the cost of a new solar system you can, you can take in tax credits. But what that means is that only people or companies who have tax liability, who are wealthy enough uh, to pay that much in taxes, and you know, candidly, who are also wealthy enough to have tax lawyers and accountants to document um, the tax credit, can access that benefit, can access that incentive. You know, people who are less wealthy, you know, people who are lower or moderate income, um, nonprofit organizations, community-based organizations can't touch it. So the way that we incentivize solar rewards wealth with reduced taxes. And it actually pulls access to solar away from many of the people who really should be our priorities to serve. So while I'm grateful for the ITC, I'm grateful for that incentive and for all of the new solar and other renewables that it's helped to get built, you know, there's a values misalignment is if what we care about is, you know, equity and access for all, and that's a gap that we need to close from a policy perspective so we can realize our vision. And the way that we get there is by questioning the values at the center of our policies. At a program level, think about solar, community solar, rooftop solar, um, uh, whichever form you'd like to consider. And there is this expectation often in the marketplace you know, that solar has got to be less expensive and that even if you're relatively wealthy, you know, even if you're in the top 5% of income earners in your city or state, like you want to get that discount on your utility bill. Even if the, the typical discount for solar, you know, for community solar, for instance, in a, in a place like Washington, D.C., is maybe, I don't know, worth a couple of lattes a month. If you're pulling down half a million dollars a year in household income, do you really need to save $16 on your utility bill? I, I don't think so. <laughs> but aggregating, you know, those savings and prioritizing allocating savings to lower income households really matters. And because all it takes is just a few neighbors to pull together and say, you know what, I'm going to prioritize my savings for people who need them. And all of a sudden, you're able to cut lower income household bills in half, which is more like $500 in savings per year. And that's real money. You know, that's groceries, that's medicine, um, that's a significant portion of a month's rent. And so I think whether we're at the policy system level of design or whether we're at the program or product design level, we really have to ask ourselves, how are we embedding our values in the value systems 
that drive transactions in our program space. And if we're reflecting our values there, um, then we're going to get a whole lot more good done. You know, rather than saying one thing and sort of inadvertently doing another is we just replicate patterns and systems from the past that PS, you know, aren't doing what we want them to do and are just expanding poor outcomes and inequities. I love that. And I, I, I think about it a lot. I hadn't used these words, but it's so powerful just hearing you talk about it because I've noticed the ways in which, and you know, partially I've noticed this thanks to the work that many people have done to make me notice the work, uh, that we, uh, we often in the environmental movement have been goals oriented and the goals have been very specific around carbon. Um, and you're talking about being oriented towards values um, and, and it's, it, it is, very fundamentally different. And if we had been more values oriented, I think, you know, things like the ITC would not have looked the way that they do. And um, I still think that's a struggle. It's actually one of the things I enjoy most about being surrounded in this podcast with, with real feminine qualities of leadership is that there is a higher tolerance for a, a bigger willingness to think about the solutions that are sometimes more complex, but still get you to the same goal. And they do a much better job of embodying those values, um, you know, than the, the thing that says like, well, you know, we need a government incentive. That's the easiest way to do it. <laughs> you know? uh, that's not always the best way to do it, but it takes uh, time and patience. And it sounds like you really express that. Um, so thank you for, for your leadership on that. And um, I wanna ask you, you know, these days, maybe it's the manifestation of these things for you, but what, is there a project that you are working on right now that you want our listeners to know about? I would say, well, it, before I answer that, I, I want to come back to a, a thread in, in, your, in your comment, Lindsay. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's certainly around the value-values alignment. And, mm -hmm. you know, we have to start somewhere, you know, the ITC can be good, but we need to have other, you know, parts of that system too. Um, it's both and yeah. you know, is, yeah. is, is, the, is the answer to the question. But I also, reflecting on 25 years in this space, understand how we have got here too, in terms of that focus on metrics and goals. Because when I was, um, you know, just reflecting on my own experience, uh, when I was very young in this space, even to be heard from a sustainability perspective, even to be heard, you had to be perfect. You had to be mm -hmm. technically perfect. You had to be able to make that cost benefit uh, argument down to the penny. And you also had to be able to demonstrate why it was better to invest those dollars in sustainability than in a sales conference or another marketing brochure. It was not an easy sell. Yeah. And I think what that fostered is a technocratic culture in the sustainability space that can sometimes rob our attention you know, from people and from the importance of changing hearts as well as changing minds. And I think that's one way you know, that particularly in the green building space that the community has begun to feel maybe more like a market than like the movement that it began as. Yeah. And yeah. The moment that we're in, you know, with the bold and very important climate and equity 
and environmental justice goals that the Biden and Harris administration are advancing, you know, with the historic, really once in a generation investments that the American Jobs Plan would drive into infrastructure, including climate infrastructure. You know, we have a moment now when we can reflect and reconsider those things and discover the soul, you know, of our movement, as well as the statistics, you know, and, and get back on a better path. And now um, I've completely forgotten your question. Totally fine. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I, I like it. That was a good, that was a good uh, uh, distraction point. And you're right. I think it's the both and that was important. So, okay. The question is, what are you working on right now? What do you want our listeners to know about? What are you excited about? There, there's so many things that we're doing, and, and, and there's so much work that's happening that's innovative and pioneering and, and really at the vanguard, I think, of what's possible in building a more equitable and just clean energy economy. And I just want to lift up my colleagues and their leadership in doing that. Um, one thing that comes to mind is the Share Power program that we've developed, you know, how we're helping communities in Washington, D.C. and in Illinois soon to be in New York, you know, find ways for neighbors to work together so that we're bringing new solar online and we're doing it with inclusive financing approaches and that we're doing it in ways that do, you know, prioritize our neighbors who need savings um, with very significant bill reductions. I think currently Groundswell is serving about 3,500 households or more and saving people about $1.85 million a year on their utility bills. Amazing. But we're also working in my hometown and, and so much of it comes, you know, for me as a, as a small town girl from the deep South, you know, if you can't do what you do at home, what good are you, you know? And, um, you know, so being able to bring what I know and, um, and what I can do to help, you know, to my community is really important. And it's been one of the great joys to me and my work uh, to be working back in rural Georgia. And there we're partnering with a growing number of communities on what we call the SOUL program, Save on Utilities Long-Term. Um, but it's using energy savings you know, via utility bills you know, to get energy retrofits into the homes of some of the, the lowest income members of our community. You know, people who very much like my grandmother you know, if it got too hot or too cold, she'd get a four or $500 utility bill. She couldn't afford that on her social security check. She couldn't afford it when she was working in the mill either. And um, it's just so wonderful to be able to bring like all this concentrated knowledge of building science, you know, and clever financial innovations with partners like our, our partners there in e-utility, you know, for to serve people in their homes so they can live more comfortably you know, and a little healthier and a little better um, through what we all know how to do. That's beautiful. I love that. I'm so excited to hear about it. And it's also just oh, really heartwarming to know that you've been able to get back to your own community. I think I have said this uh, on the podcast before, but I grew up in John Lewis's uh, congressional district and he came to speak to a bunch of students one time. I was there and he said, you know, the South needs you because no one's going to change the South except for Southerners. And I always, it sits with me all the time. It's basically like, <laughs> you got to get back someday. And I still feel him saying that to me every, every once in a while, maybe I will manage to get back. 
Um, and yeah, I'm so impressed that you have. Um, so we'll roll okay, out the welcome mat for you when you do Lindsay. We'll, ha- <laughs> we'll, we'll have the welcome mat ready and a casserole. Yeah. And maybe like a mint julep <laughs> would be great. Um, thank you. All right. Well, so, um, so maybe you already said, maybe you already hinted at this, but um, I want to know what you're most proud of accomplishing in your work life so far. Uh, I'm just, I'm curious about this one for you. You've got so many great stories to tell. I was reflecting on this last week, completely, you know, apart from the conversation that we're having today. And the thing I'm most proud and grateful for in my work life is all the extraordinary people I've been able to support through my journey. You know, whether it's, um, you know, people I've mentored, you know, been, been there to answer hard questions when people were facing hard things in their life, or people I've been able to hire, you know, and, and help support them in their, their first job or maybe second job, you know, getting on this path, getting on the road that I've been on too with them, you know, in this journey together. Um, or I think especially as a, as a woman in this field and as a woman who at this point, I'll be 49 this year, you know, so I've spanned a couple of decades of what it's like to be anything other than a Northern European white male um, in any corporate space but to sponsor, right, to advocate for, for other women and, and for younger people in leadership roles. So it's not just an older generation, you know, at the top of the pyramid, if you will, from a decision-making perspective so that we're diversifying boardrooms and C-suites at the same time. Um, but that's, that's what I am most grateful for having been able to do, to use not just my platform, but my position and whatever degree of authority I've developed over the course of my career to really stand in the breach and make way for other more diverse voices to come forward to. I don't want anybody to have to work as hard as I did um, in some of those spaces. And I don't want anyone to have to, I don't want any women to have to be as much of a man as I had to be Mm -hmm. um, to be able to get as far as I have. Yeah, isn't that the truth? I feel that way so much. All the all the folks that I've had the privilege of having on my teams who I've been able to make space for, the feeling of getting to say to them, you don't have to act like <laughs> sort of yes. stereotypes of leadership and like just be yourself is a, such a good feeling to have because yeah, man, I wish I had that <laughs> more. I do a little bit more now, right? But you know, to have had to play those games in order to get respect was something I really don't wish on anyone. Um, all right, well, God, we could talk about that forever, but thank you. And my, I wanna ask you, we're gonna talk a little bit more about the sort of the broader movement and where you think it's going. And my question for you there is, is sort of about the sustainability industry, the green building industry. Um, you hinted at this a little bit mm-hmm. about the movement earlier um, we like to talk about the difference between being a part of an industry and being a part of a movement. And so I'd love to hear you talk about how you think about that for yourself. When I, when I reflect on where we were and how it felt, you know, to be part of this work 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it is different now. And part of that, I think, is rooted in a very specific vision that we had. And that I believe we all still share around market transformation, right? 
I mean, ultimate success is sustainability is just the way all the things are done. So sustainability isn't even a thing anymore, right? You make yourself obsolete um, by achieving your mission and by transforming the space around you. And inherent in that, it was always a really dynamic tension and attention that I believe that people who are leaders, uh, formal and informal leaders in the space, have to stay attuned to and really help guide people through and point out, you know, when the balance is tipping in the wrong direction. And that is this, and I'll, I'll use lead as an example. You know, you want market transformation. So in a sense, it's like more lead is good, right? More and more lead spaces are good. But also, you know, lead is supposed to represent leadership. So not everybody, not every building can be lead. You know, so what is that right balance for pulling programs forward so that they're not technically, you know, from a technical perspective, accessible to everyone, um, so that you're raising the bar while you're raising the floor as well. And I believe there's been so much success in many ways in mainstreaming corporate sustainability mainstreaming ESG, you know, mainstreaming green building practices, that the balances have perhaps tipped a bit more, you know, from movement to market or to industry sector. And refinding, rediscovering that inspiration, where is the heart and soul of the movement? What is the thing that connects people? beyond what they do every day in their job descriptions and what transactions they may undertake together. Um, so that we're moving back from transactional metrics to transformative purpose. And um, that is where I believe, and that is where I personally feel that we are today too. Um, how do we recenter soul in the work and refocus on transformation? Michelle, that is so powerful and it really resonates with me. I've been thinking about that a lot um, with respect to programs that I'm involved with that are, you know, trying to bring people along and keep moving the leading edge bar, right, mm -hmm. at the same time. And that's, it's complicated. It's really tricky. Um, I wanted to ask where you think we would be, uh, where you thought we would be by the 2020s and, you know, sort of what your assessment is, having been involved for these many years, you know, where do you see that the big progress areas or maybe the lack of progress areas from your perspective? I would say it's very different <laughs> than what I thought it would be. Um, you know, as we were, as we were moving into the 2000s, you know, up until 2016, my expectation was that it would be a, a steady climb and it would be a hard climb. You know, every, every good success, whether in sustainability or any aspect of your life, always brings on the next wave of challenges. Like Kimberly Lewis, who is my dear friend and, and sister and BFF and the chair of my board, been working together for God, more than 20 years now. She and I were talking about this this morning. You know, God's promise to us is that he's got our back, but he doesn't never say that it's always going to be easy, you know? And my expectation is that it would always be hard work, but my expectation was also that we would be on a steady, continuous climb, not that we would be abruptly knocked off Mount Sustainability and have to kind of start all over again. And um, so that aspect of the work was different. And, you know, the past four years of uh, 
of being very off the path, you know, from a, from a national policy perspective and national goals perspective really hurt my heart. You know, it was very discouraging, but um, I love that we're moving forward again. You know, I love the resolve that um, so many corporate leaders who are very, um, have you know, market power and have platform. I love the, the leadership that they took on. And um, I love all of the, the new voices and younger voices that are coming to the fore of the climate movement now and all the work that has been done to realize putting justice and equity much more so at the center of the movement through work that we see reflected in the Justice 40 and the Biden-Harris administration's commitment to environmental justice. And that's been ongoing, you know, as a major arm of the civil rights movement for decades. You know, I think about Dr. Mildred McLean, you know, as an inspiration and a mentor and really a mother of the movement and so much of her and her peers and friends and family and colleagues vision being realized today. And um, so it's different work, you know, in, in terms of recovering uh, from the past four years than what I would have thought it would have been, you know, in say 2009. But um, I'm glad we're still here and we're still at it. And that folks like us um, who were a little more seasoned, taking a few knocks, got back up again, figured it out, um, that we're here to help and continue to build a movement and uh, build up uh, leaders who are coming to the fore today. Because we can get it done and um, we really don't have any other option, right? We got to make it happen. And I uh, got to do it with joy and service to each other too. I love that, Michelle. And I think that expression you used hurt my heart. Um, I'm certain I'm not the only person that that resonated with. It was a very painful period for a lot of people. Um, and I, that was such a, such a succinct way of, of putting that. Um, so the question that we usually wrap up with is the last one I have for you is um, really about who you're most inspired by these days in terms of leaders. And I know you just mentioned Dr. McLean, so I don't know if you want to talk more about her or mention others that are people that inspire you. There are so many inspirational leaders. I'm so grateful that we have such an abundance of them. Um, you know, Dr. McLean, Dr. Mildred McLean, certainly. I mean, she just has such a powerful spirit. And um, the teaching, the wisdom that she has to share keeps me moving on a lot of days. And um, Kimberly Lewis, my dear friend, my BFF, my board chair, Kimberly always has a word and she has such love and such an insightful perspective on um, where we are as a movement and where we need to go. She, she takes you to church and uh, when, when she's giving the, you know, giving the charge for sustainability. Um, I think about my grandmothers a lot. You know, I, I love my parents, my mom and dad too. They've been so supportive of me. But um, I think about my grandmothers, my mama Nop and my and my mama Moore, and just how hard they worked. You know how hard they worked through extraordinarily difficult circumstances, and um, whether they were you know young people sharecropping, you know with their families or hard at work in the mills, you know they always had a vision for their families that extended way beyond their own comfort and way beyond their own lifetimes. And I think about the courage, you know, that it takes to do work today um, that you know is going to be for your kids or for your grandkids and that won't be realized potentially until even long after your death and um, how important it is for us to be 
like them or like my friend Ari Wallach says, like, what does it take to be great ancestors and to rediscover that long-term vision, you know, for our lives and for our communities? Um, that inspires me every single day. And I also, you know, as a part of my faith practice, um, I read a, a morning devotion every day. You know, I go back to the word, I go back to the Bible and find such great, not just comfort and instruction and perspective there too, um, because there is nothing new under the sun when it comes to the challenges that we face. And there's always inspiration and direction to be found there too. Um, so perpetually inspired by the word. Oh, that's a lovely way to finish, Michelle. I love that. I love the idea that there's nothing new under the sun. It's a very calming and important way to remember to, to yeah, to just um, sit with the present. So thank you so much for being with us. It has been a pleasure uh, and an honor, and we really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's been a blessing to be with y'all this afternoon, too. Yes, and that is it for us this week on the Design the Future podcast. Thanks again. Uh, please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week.